Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Hello, and welcome to episode 20 of Goodwill Hunters. Today on the show, we have Alison Covington. Alison is the founder and managing director of Good360 Australia, an organisation which allows businesses to give their brand new unsold goods to charities. Since 1983, Good360 have been connecting unsold goods to charities in the USA. However, the organisation was launched by Alison in Australia in 2013 with the goal of delivering $1 billion of goods to Australians in need. Alison's success in the corporate sector has enabled her to pursue her philanthropic ideals with incredible results, including over $50 million of goods delivered via Good360 since March 2015. What an exciting business. Alison, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Okay, so I'm not overly familiar with the Good360 model. I've really enjoyed learning more about it um, as I've prepared for this interview. But let's start with your first interaction with Good360. So what first drew you to the model when you came across it in the US? Um, So it was quite by accident. I just read about Good360 and I just thought how obvious that you could connect brand new goods with um, not-for-profits and people in need. And, you know, I was just really curious about the fact that what was happening to all these goods when businesses had um, their sales and then got to the end of their surplus um, and what was happening to that because we were so familiar with food waste and that everybody was um, passionate about connecting food, um, but nobody here in Australia was doing anything else with the brand new goods which were like toys and clothes and household goods Um, and I just thought wasn't that curious that we sort of hadn't done that so I I kept reading more about the US um, and they had done it at such scale they were at that point at seven billion dollars worth of connections to over 40,000 charities Um, and the curious thing for me was that they had been doing it for over 30 years and I always thought that you know sometimes Australia is a little bit behind trend on international trends, um, but not 30 years. I thought that was just a little bit too curious for my liking. (laughs) So then I sort of, you know, was looking at what all the people were doing in the food space and they were doing fantastic things. And they had been operating, you know, in some states, you know, 20 years and some 10 years. Um, And it just struck me that, you know, why hadn't they pivoted and then sort of worked in the other areas? Um, Because, you know, we're meeting the needs of the food businesses, but we weren't meeting the needs of the other businesses. Um, But more importantly, we weren't meeting the needs of Australians. So if we were feeding them, um, you know, food and hunger, you know, lasts for a few hours and then we're all hungry again. But, you know, we're not going to change outcomes if we don't clothe and keep people warm and, you know, give them all the things that make us equal in society so that we can get back into education and into employment. And if we have all these goods that are available and all these people that need them, why don't we match them up? So to me, it was just so curious. And um, then when you have this knowledge, you then empowered that you feel like you have to do something about it. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> That's 
something about it. Yeah, you did. You really did. And it's it's so true. I was I was considering the same thing today whereby the popularity of food sharing organizations is it's probably due to the fact that, you know, hunger is our most basic human need and it seems very obvious. We, you know, we've got we've got a lot of food, we've got people who don't have enough food, we'll connect them to that food, but we don't think so much about goods and products, but as you've said, these are the things that I mean, it's it's a basic need almost in the same way that food is. Oh, absolutely. Because like I said, you know, you're hungry and you're constantly hungry and we have to keep addressing that. But you're also cold and you also need personal care. You know, you need shampoo and you need deodorant. Um, and if you're going to be lifted up into society and feel equal, you'd need to be equal to everybody else, to your peers. Um, and if these goods are available, we have to give people the dignity of giving them those brand new goods Um, and now that we're fortunate enough to see you know three years in to see the power of giving somebody something brand new out of a box with tags on it and the joy that that gives to people um, you can't underestimate the difference that makes to somebody's life Um, and you know if you just think about your own human needs that you know you wake up in the morning and you have your breakfast but you do more than just eat to get on with your daily life don't you you know you've got out of your warm bed you've had the luxury of a shower you've had the luxury of you know bath um body wash and shampoos and you know you might have been able to put some makeup on but you know to just function in society and so that you know there's no discrimination when you stand on that train and you smell and look like everybody else it takes more than food to function in society you know we are a materialistic society and it does require more products than just food to survive so one of the terms that I use is like we like to take people from surviving to thriving Mm. Um, and these additional goods means people can thrive in society Mm. yeah you put that so well I'm I'm curious about uh, I always like comparing social change trends in the US and other uh, OECD countries versus Australia what what do you think it was that made Good360 take off in the US in a way that it didn't in Australia early on was it just the fact that there are more people there and therefore more need No, I think it was really, really very simple and very basic. Somebody had a problem that needed solving and somebody actually solved it for them. So it came down to how it it evolved and how it started was that 3M had a whole heap of products that they needed um, placing Um, and it was a whole heap of office products and and it was at large scale, very large scale. And so they formed a charity to place those products into society. And then other businesses went, oh, that's a good idea. And so all of a sudden other business products started getting put into this charitable company um, to place products and it just become out of you know you solve a business problem and you create scale Um, and that's how it came about was somebody had a problem solved for them and everybody else looked at that and went yeah that's really interesting and it evolved from there and you know the business took the initiative not to dump those goods and find a, a solution for that Um, And that's how I talk about here in Australia, um, because people say, well, why are these businesses doing that? Why are they not giving them to people in need? Um, And, you know, why are the charities not um, getting access to these goods? Um, And often I'm contacted by journalists to have an opinion when, you know, there's a a business has been outed in the media about, you know, destroying or dumping goods. And I said, you know, you can't crucify anybody if there's not a solution in place, Um, because businesses will often contact 
a charity and say, hey, we have these goods, and they'll contact half a dozen charities. Um, but the size and the scale of the goods that they want to donate is more than a charity can take because a charity doesn't have loading docks and, you know, the ability to take semi-trailer loads. Charities are small organisations and they're very busy doing what they do. And businesses want to do good but are so busy working on tomorrow's product, they can't have the time and effort to look at yesterday's product. And when they say, hey, I have five semi-trailer loads of goods, and the charity goes, oh, I'll have one box, thank you. (laughs) Um, The business goes, no, you need to take five semi-trailer loads. And the charity goes, but I only have a small storeroom. And so nobody's at fault, but it's just the system wasn't in place to deal with that. The infrastructure's not there. so that's where we said, oh, we need to come along and provide the logistics and the capabilities to be the matchmaker um, and distribute, you know, be the problem solver in that solution. Yeah. Uh, I really like how you put that in saying that, you know, we can't berate businesses for not doing this when the systems don't exist. And and something I often bring up in this podcast is you know businesses consist of people and people most people are inherently good and want to help um but they just need the systems and the opportunities to help Mm. and it's so fantastic to hear that that good 360 is providing that yeah and you know we've worked recently with one big retailer um who had a lot of um surplus stock at store and wanted to do good so we created a a technology and the processes and systems to be able to distribute from 183 stores to over 255 charities in one month 1.5 million dollars 1.5 sorry million items to 229 charities um so communities all around the nation got access to these good 1.5 million items Um, and that's phenomenal because we were able to create that system for them so they couldn't have rung you know 229 charities they couldn't have made that relationship to those charities and know that they were vetted charities who were appropriate to take their goods but by us connecting and making all those processes and technologies available to them the staff and the employees within that organization feel so good that that surplus stock now have homes and have created such great stories within their local communities Um, and it's really really touching to see how those store members now feel so engaged with local communities knowing that 1.5 million items have been dispersed around the country in a month um, that was surplus to their needs Um, but it takes you know systems processes technology that they couldn't have done on their own so and you know that's just the start of what we call pioneering a movement of getting retailers to act responsibly yeah now I'm interested in the logistics of this so you so a business a retail group say would contact you and say we've got surplus stock can you come and collect it and then you you collect it and take it to a warehouse so we design so we custom make solutions for businesses so we can bring it into our warehouse we can take it from their dcs and connect it directly to charities we can disperse it directly from their stores um you know we can work on custom made solutions that work best for the business and best for the charities so what we try to do is say what is the most economically financially economic solution but also environmentally um, friendly footprint so um, surplus stock isn't moving all around the country where it doesn't need to go Um, so you know it's a custom footprint um, that's good for the people and good for the planet 
Yeah. So it's very bespoke and I imagine that's a, that's a large part of the appeal for businesses is that it, I mean, you're on, you're on their side, you're going to create something bespoke that really works for them. Yeah. So we have, you know, about five plans that we sort of go, you know, this is the, the plan that we can do and then we will customize it for you. But we know these plans work um, and we'll work around your systems as well. That's great. Okay, I want to talk about the impact that this is having on some of the people receiving the goods. But before we get on to that, it's been a very interesting week for consumerism uh, in light of the recent uh, Black Friday debates. I don't know if I just haven't noticed it in past years, but I certainly noticed this year a lot of the brands that I support, um, more often than not, they're very ethical, environmentally friendly brands. They all boycotted Black Friday. Um, and I thought that was a really interesting take on the fact that we're realizing that mass consumerism is harmful to people, to planet, and, you know, we don't, we don't want to encourage consumerism. And so I really like the fact that goods can be repurposed, um, even unused goods in, in the way that Good360 is doing. But what's, what's your take on this? And do you view Good360 as part of the conscious consumerism movement? Yeah, so we see ourselves as part of um, looking at ways society can repurpose. So we think that no goods or unused goods should go to waste. Um, so in terms of that, um, you know, we will collaborate with any of our partners, whether they're our business partners or other people in the um, collective movement to sort of say, you know, where's dormant goods and how do we give them another life? So whether they've come from a consumer's home and they can be repurposed. So we just recently worked with the world's biggest garage sale because, you know, they're, they're great at sort of repurposing consumers' goods. Um, we're great at um, repurposing businesses' goods. Um, so what we're saying is that, you know, we, we do have dormant goods in society and we need to give them another home. Um, you know, if less goods were made, um, that's great. Um, but at the moment we know there are still dormant and surplus goods and you know our role is to um, move them to the other side of the marketplace so we're sort of saying you know whilst there's new and dormant we'll move them over to the people who need them and that's our role to do that um and I suppose what we see from the business's point of view, you know, they're buying forecasts. You know, it's it's very difficult for them to sort of forecast exactly that they'll get um, 100% of their forecasting right um, and there will always be some of that surplus available. Um, we just want to make sure that that goes to the right people um, and that's our role to do that. Um, but we're a real collaborator in, the, in that sort of um, marketplace to say, well, you know, where can we make sure um, there's some collaboration to, to reuse product. Okay, so as I mentioned before, I'm interested in how you select the charities which will receive goods from Good360. And what, I mean, what's done with the goods once they're received? If you have any stories that you can share of how the goods are actually shared amongst the community. Yeah, so our rules are that the charities or non-for-profits need to be registered with the ACNC, which is our governing body here in um, Australia. Um, so we go, they go through a vetting process with us, um, and as long as they are, a, you know, a registered 
um, charity, they can then apply to be part of our marketplace um, and then we can match them with a, um, one of our business partners. Some of our business partners may have another level of vetting, which sort of says that some of their products may only go to some eligible charities which fit their criteria as well. So, we may have to rule that out. Um, and some of that may be, you know, around specific toys that they want to make sure that they only go to charities meeting their particular criteria around, you know, making children smile and things like that. Um, and that's why p- business partners work with us because we do all the due diligence and all the vetting to make sure um, charity is appropriate to the businesses cause areas um, are selected to get access to our goods um, we can also then put filters around the the volumes and the quantities of products that charities can receive based on their sizes and their cause areas um, just to make sure it's shared equally among, among our members as well once our members have access to the goods um, they distribute it to their community members the people that they're working with in their local communities to make sure that they're helping um, people as well One of the other areas um, that I didn't mention is that we do work with disadvantaged schools. Um, So, schools that are supporting students um, that are in low sort of socioeconomic areas, um, we can work with them because um, one of the areas that I sort of really noticed was that, you know, a lot of our schools are supporting students with breakfast programs. um, And I think, you know, and I'm quite passionate about this, that if, you know, a child's turning up to school and can't um, have breakfast, um, there's many other areas that they need support in. And if we can make sure that they're supported um, holistically, there, we can keep them in school um, and it can improve education and literacy rates for Australians and, you know, that improves our whole country. So, um, we work hard to support those schools as well. Um, so, once the um, schools or our not-for-profits have access to our product, um, they think very creatively about how they can work to support their communities. Um, once they distribute it to their communities, um, it must be given to somebody in need. It can't be sold or raffled or fundraised or anything like that. Um, it has to be given to directly to a person who needs it. Um, the charities then report back to us via what we call impact stories um, and they're all loaded onto our websites or a selection of them are and um, they're just so beautiful and they're just it's a very small paragraph about the impact it's had on changing people's lives and a picture and you know that means the world to us because you know we're so busy doing the doing running around making all the partnerships Um, to just get that little snippet of story back is so fantastic Um, and I often spend my nights just scrolling through the stories and getting goosebumps and just going wow we did that um and just thinking you know we stopped everything to start this um and the impact on that one person's life or that child's life that we changed is just absolutely incredible um and just one of the stories that really struck home to me is because you know we have to you know screen some of our charities and it's not obvious why the charities are taking some of our products um and one of our you know hot products and favorite products is lush and i think you know a lot of people will be very familiar with lush products (laughs) you know and it's really important that our charities get access to you know popular brands because like i'm very passionate about you know the dignity that that provides when you get the same as somebody else gets and one of our charities ordered it and it was a, a charity that supports men and so we sort of went oh you know that's a bit unusual we better just check that (laughs) and the story that came back was that it was a a charity that supports single dads Um, and then the story coming back was that you know he'd given it to his teenage daughter Um, he'd never been able to buy anything for his teenage daughter before as a gift um, because you know just supporting being a single dad um, is tough enough paying the rent and doing the food Um, but being able to give her products that were lush meant that she was equal to the other girls at high school Um, And that gave me absolute 
you know, goosebumps because you know how tough it is in high school. We've, you know, I've been a teenage girl, um, as many people have, and the bullying and, the, you know, the, the mental health issues that go on when you don't have what the other girls have. Um, so for her to turn up and have the same brands as the other girls had to me was just, you know, phenomenal. Um, and I shared that with one of the Lush directors when I met him at a business breakfast and he was, you know, very emotional because he said that when he started at Lush, he was fi- finally a dad in his teenage daughter's eyes. That was cool because, you know, he'd never been cool before. And so for him, you know, as a, you know, in, an employee of the brand, he knew how important that was to that single dad. Um, and I think that makes us realise just why, these goods are so important to people's lives. Oh, I just had tears in my eyes when you were telling that story. <laughs> I think um, I really like the point that you've raised there that we don't want to give people like B-grade brands that, you know, that aren't as recognisable or exciting. And it, it, there is a lot of dignity in having the the luxury product that everyone else your age has and, and loves. Um, I think I think that's really special. Yeah. And it's been able to give that gift, you know, for that dad to be able to give a gift to his daughter, you know, like you, you underestimate that if you can't do that for your family, um, the mental health on him is not being able to provide for his family and not being able to put that smile on the face of his daughter you know they're big things um you know at the same time we did a drought package in the, for the new south wales farmers and you know everybody was getting the bail out there in the food um but we talked and figured out you know what did they need and at, at that time my son was having a birthday and you know i had the ability to buy him a present but we were talking to the charities who were out on the ground down there and said can we send you toys because if there's a farmer there who can't provide toys to their kids what's that going to do to their mental health and you know the reaction and the stories we got back um broke my heart um and so you know we did a million dollar drought package of you know toys lego you know all these shopkins all the brands that are really important bikes because i thought you know no parents should not be able to give their kid a present on their birthday um because you know we're having stories of the farmers going out and shooting their animals um but I just thought the mental health issues coming along with them not being able to give a gift at birthday time is just too much to bear. So, you know, we filled a semi-trailer load and we sent it out to the farmers, as well as the Lush and the L'Oreal and all the other beautiful things for the farmers' wives. Um, but, you know, you can't underestimate what that does to provide, you know, that uplift for a family. Well, that that's a fantastic example and I, I think that really demonstrates the the incredible impact that Good360 has. Um, in terms of actually measuring that impact in sort of quantitative terms or qualitative terms, is that something you leave up to the charity partners to do? No. So we're um, all about statistics because, you know, we're not a frontline provider. So it makes it quite hard for us to be able to report because, you know, as a charity, it's tough getting funding and we're always trying to figure out where we're going to get our next funding round from. Um, so we have to provide statistics to our partners to, to, to do that. Um, so we provide um, statistics all the time to our partners. So what we do is we collect um, the number of boxes, the number of um, items that we um, provide as well as um, where we represent um, charities around Australia. So um, currently we've packed um, 5.8 million items and sent them to charities in need around the country. Um, So individuals have received 5.8 million items through 
Good 360. Um, we represent charities all around the nation. Um, currently, the biggest um, population is in New South Wales um, and Victoria. Um, but what we did just recently is send container loads out to Northern Territory and Western Australia because we thought, you know, we have to get that impact up. We have to make sure our m- most remote um, states are well resen- represented with um, product as well. Um, and we work with over a thousand charities. So um, we Every single product or item that comes in the warehouse and goes out of the warehouse is calculated about the impact of um, what it's doing in which state it's going to and which charity it's going to. So um, we calculate um, the recommended retail price of every single item that comes in and out and the impact of where it goes around the country and to which charity and by which cause area um, because that's very important to the people who want to fund us to know is it is it going in the cause areas and in the states um, and to the types of charities that they're working with. Yeah. Wow. That's fantastic. And we'll include um, a link to your website in the show notes so our listeners can see some of those statistics. Now, in episode 10 of this podcast, we had Claire Press, who is Vogue's sustainability editor at large. Um, And we talked a lot about the way that goods are produced and campaigns like Who Made My Clothes, um, which uh, Oxfam and and, um, other organisations have really championed. I'm interested in if there are any goods that you won't accept because they weren't ethically produced in the first place, or do you see your role as sharing them to sort of make the best of a bad situation? Yeah, so we've looked at that report and, you know, looked at the businesses and how that works, Um, but we're also part of the circular economy. So, you know, the end is to say, well, they have to get a life. Um, So if they have been produced, um, we can't have them being unused or going back into landfill because, you know, um, regardless of how their life started, we have to give them an end use that's more useful. Um, but, you know, what we would like to really do is sort of um, work collaboratively to talk with governments to sort of legislate how we can improve the supply chain um, so from from start to end. Um, and so they're doing a really good um way to advocate at the start of the supply chain and sort of say, let's talk about the ethical process there. Um, but we'd also like government to also look at the end of the supply chain because the gov- um, businesses don't have any mandates on, you know, whether they can send product to landfill. Um, so we're not reporting on that. So we're starting to report more on the front end of the supply chain about the ethical use there. Um, but businesses don't have to report in Australia, but they do in other countries about what they do with finished goods. Um, So they can send it to landfill Um, and landfill is very cheap in Australia and in some some states it's free. Um, So to be able to dump it in landfill um, is actually free and you can bury it and have no responsibility to report on what you're doing with those goods. Whereas up the front end of the supply chain, we're saying, you know, let's be ethical. But once it's actually been produced, um, if it didn't get sold, and most consumers think that it always gets sold and, you know, we're up in arms about the ethical way it was produced, um, but it's actually actually really immoral to have brand new goods and there's so many people living below the line of poverty like three million people in Australia are doing it really really tough but these products are now allowed to be buried and government's not legislating businesses to talk about that and they don't have to report it at all. That's a really interesting fact that you just shared that in Australia businesses don't have to report on the end of goods 
on what happens yeah. at the I had no idea. Is yeah. that is that a, just a law that we don't have? Is there law reform underway? No. So just recently we were looking at the business, um, government's put out their three-year sort of circular economy paper um, and they're, you know, going, oh, yes, we'll talk about um, food waste, organics, um, household consumer waste and plastic. And we're like, hello, <laughs> you haven't even mentioned business. <laughs> um, so we're here champion going, hello, you've got no obligation on business. Like you've looked at everybody else and business, are, you've got no obligation to report or as a government, you don't even see it as a product. Um, so little old good 360s up there jumping around <laughs> going, we have evidence that $70 million worth of goods are available and we're just scratching the surface. Um, so we're trying to, you know, kick up our own little stink, but we need a lot more people to jump on the bandwagon as we have up the other end of the supply chain going, hey, but once it's produced, don't let it go to landfill. We need businesses to report. Um, and I was recently speaking to someone that in South Africa, it is mandatory to report these things and I assume it is another country countries. We are lucky that we work with um, uh, L'Oreal um, and they are reporting it because they're a worldwide company. So they have set themselves goals and they are reporting what they do and that's why they work with us because they are determined to have ethical um, supply chains. We want to see people meet those standards and, you know, whether they work with us or somebody else, do the right thing. Um, and that's what we need to see happening. Um, and then, you know, by default, if you're not doing that, consumers would then choose not to participate with you. And 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 for consumers, it is about making some of this information more available to consumers, so that you you can go on a brand's website and see, you know, what's their modern slavery policy? How are they managing their supply chains? Um, so I'm sure people like you and myself and lots of others do take that step of going on a brand's website and looking at these things, but often that kind of information just isn't available. Mm. And it's just it's just turning the light on for people so they start to think about it. But if government isn't part of that process of working together um, and we start to write these reports and then make consumers aware. So it's, you know, it's, it's putting all the dots together and saying it, it's collaboration that we all work together to make it commonplace. And I, I always refer to it like when I started this was that, you know, how did the, you know, the recycle bins get in our household? You know, it just became a thing that happened over the decades. And so I say that by the time my children hit the workplace, it should be mandatory that they know no different that businesses are doing this um, because they know no different in my household that they recycled. But as a child, it sort of came in um, by the time I became an adult. And so that's what I want to see happen in their lifetime, that businesses do the same. Um, and I thought it would take a decade, but I'm not sure that I'll get it done in a decade because it's, you know, me champion all of Australia. I've got 24 million people or so to convince. <laughs> so I need a few more people on the bandwagon with me. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I think you can do it. Now, <laughs> Uh, I wanted to ask you a question about the not-for-profit sector because obviously you're working quite closely with uh, not-for-profit partners or for-purpose partners, um, as they're often being called now. Um, there's a number of trends that are affecting the not-for-profit sector. I'm interested in what trends you've seen affecting the sector and how, from the perspective of Good360, are you supporting your charity partners in navigating those trends? 
So I think the biggest trend is everybody wants us to collaborate um, because there's less funding available. So, that, you know, there's all this talking about, you know, you have to merge, you know, you have to be less um, charities in the sector because there's less funding pools. Um, so that's why I always, you know, go by the that is collaboration rather than replication. Um, so we work, whether it's with our business partners or with our charities, to say what is the best way that we can do more for people in Australia. So if we all look at our mission statements or, you know, as a business, you know, what are your values? How do we collaborate to do more? And so my goal is always to sort of say, if there's infrastructure in place, whether you're a charity or a business, how do you join your infrastructure together to do more? And by way of that example, we always say that um, we have one warehouse in Sydney. We will never own or operate another warehouse in Australia, but we do national logistics all across Australia, and we will move a billion dollars worth of goods around Australia without another warehouse. Um, and that's by collaborating with people who own space and using other people's infrastructure because it doesn't make sense to go to a philanthropic funder or a corporate funder to have warehouse space. And um, I see that often happen with um, charities is that they feel like they have to have a warehouse in every state, um, but that's not cost-effective because then you have to have operational staff in every state and then there's a general manager and a marketing department and a CEO. Um, and who wants to fund that? So what we've done is that we just re recently worked with Food Bank in Northern Territory and um, um, St Vincent's in WA and said, hey, what if we drop a container into your warehouse and then get a network of charities to pick up their goods from your warehouse? So let's use your space to collaborate to get more goods to more Australians. And, you know, that to me is a really smart play is just using people's food bank and with um, St Vinnie's now look like the heroes in their local communities because they distributed goods that were really high need. And that's what we're about is making people who have infrastructure look like the heroes. Um, and I think that should be the trend for all not-for-profits, that if they have back office um, skills or, you know, whatever they're actually really good at is collaborate with somebody where your strengths and weaknesses are and, you know, grow. And it's not necessarily a merger. It's just blending your skills and what your strengths are and then helping more people in need. Yeah. And I can I – can see your corporate background when you explain <laughs> that because <laughs> it makes sense in business terms but it's also just fantastic to hear of such a culture of collaboration yeah and I often like when I go to one of my people who I want to partner with I often say now let's put our egos off the table and let's go <laughs> let's put our mission, mission statements on the table first and let's let's not talk about what staff or you know who's going to where the money's going to be paid or any of those things so I just draw the big picture first mm. and then let's not talk about the funding and I go what does utopia look like and that's always my statement and I go let's look at utopia and what do we want to achieve and then we figure out the funding and because money always is the ugly conversation I say let's get that off the table table and let's look at utopia and when we look at that and go wow what impact can we make for society that gets everybody excited yeah and, and then you get approach. the ugly, yeah and then you get the ugly conversations done later <laughs> <laughs> yeah and I love that approach it makes so much sense okay my last question for you it's a question that I love to finish our interviews with um what does success look like for you in 10 years 
Okay. So success for us was that when we started in 2015 is we want to deliver $1 billion worth of goods by 2025. So that's my success. So that was my personal goal is that if I was going to stop doing what I was doing in my corporate career um, and launch this little baby, um, I wouldn't do it for mediocre. So I needed to be able to do a billion dollars worth of goods. And that to me felt like success. Um, So we're, you know, $70 million in on that goal. And you just go, well, that's not going to achieve a billion dollars. But it was about testing the systems in the first three years. And then we've got a high growth plan for the next seven years. Um, And the way it's actually um, phasing out, it looks like we will achieve that um, because we've put a whole heap of um, alternate delivery channels in, which I've talked about with those partners. Um, So I feel like we are on target to achieve it. And if we don't, I'll be kicking butt in the last two years to make sure we do. (laughs) So that's the only thing I have. You know, it's like we will make that goal because I'm very determined to make sure I see success. You absolutely will. And I can't wait to watch that unfold. Alison, this has been really, really inspiring. Thank you so much for your time today. And I'm I'm looking forward to, to watching the next seven to 10 years. It's going to be very exciting. Okay, no pressure. I will do it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank Thank you. you so much for your time. 